Matis Vakarnagel is co-founder and president of Global Footprint Network. He created the ecological footprint with Professor William Reis at the University of British Columbia as part of his PhD in community and regional planning. He has worked on sustainability with governments, corporations, and international NGOs on six continents and has lectured at more than 100 universities. He has authored and contributed to more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, numerous articles, and various books on sustainability that focus on embracing resource limits and developing metrics for sustainability. Mattis Walter-Nagel and the Global Footprint Network, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. So we call our program One Planet, but the way humans are behaving, it's as though we believed we have two planets. As you know, most of society is trained from birth almost to buy, consume, and throw away. And you've been on this awareness-raising mission for some time. Tell us about the history and mission of the Global Footprint Network. Actually, awareness doesn't help. We are on the campaign to produce a desire for that transformation. Information is useless unless it's empowering. And of course, it has to be factual. If it's not factual, then it's going to be found out. And it also has to be relevant because otherwise it's irrelevant. But if it's just relevant, it actually may just be counterproductive because if people see it as relevant but not empowering, they will use their brain to fight it. So that's why I think awareness campaigns don't work. We can only work on motivation, helping people to find a greater desire to get there, to say, yeah, that's what I want. A sense of agency that they say, I can do something about it. Also. A sense of curiosity because we really don't know how to get there, you know, eventually. So it takes a bit more than just awareness. And that's what we learned a bit painfully, obviously, over the next 30 years or painfully. Because in the beginning, we just thought, oh, why don't people just measure how many planets we have compared to how many we use? And once they see the number, it would be very obvious to them. <laughs> so we were the first to start to, and still are, I think, the main accounting approach to compare directly how big human activities are compared to what the planet can renew. So it started perhaps as, I would say, in reaction to the Brundtland Report, which brought sustainable development to the global stage and had a very complicated definition of sustainable development, you know, meeting the needs of present generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now, who understands that? I mean, you can understand if you pay attention to the exact mean and is it kind of discernible or something. So kind of saying, yeah, as a minimal condition to be able to persist, we cannot use forever more than what we get back from nature, what nature can renew. It's a very mechanical view, but we are not even fulfilling this mechanical bottom line requirement. Ecologists will tell you that to maintain biodiversity because wild species are in competition for that regeneration, maybe it's not a good idea to use the entire capacity of the planet. So shooting for one planet just means you would be totally dominant, leave no space for other species. Ecologists say to maintain 85% of kind of pre-industrial biodiversity, it would take about at least half the planet left on its own. That would mean getting to half planet. And now we use at least 1.75, I say at least because our assessments with about 15,000 data points per country and year are based on UN statistics. And they're Demand side is probably an underestimate because not all demands are included. And also on the supply side or the regeneration side, the UN is very production oriented. So the FAO numbers, for example, they look at agriculture production and the depletion side or the destruction side is not factored in adequately. So that's why it's an underestimate. And still it shows we use about 1.75 Earth and that's more than three times half an Earth. So that's kind of the difference. But we also know overshoot will end one way or another. You know, so it's not the question is, do we choose to end it? Do we choose it 
by design or do we let nature take the lead and end overshoot by disaster? So it's really like ending overshoot by design or disaster. That's the big choice we need to make. So you have this earth overshoot day mm -hmm. and this year it landed on July 28th. That's you know, correct. How do you, what does that mean really? What, you know, how do you determine that day? And you also give tools for understanding how we can roll that back. Yeah. So there are detailed accounts nation by nation and then rolled up to the world as a whole, how much we use. And that's where we come to the conclusion that we use currently earth regenerative capacity 75% faster than can renew, or that's like using 1.75 earth. Or to translate that in time, you can say, if we look at an annual budget, how much is being renewed in a year and how quickly are we using up that budget from January 1st to July 28th this year, do we use as much as Earth can renew in the entire year? So uh, perhaps the interesting part of that is that it's an explanation of what overshoot means. Overshoot is not well understood. I think the very, very few articles, even in the news talking about overshooting, though that's the big theme. Climate change is just one piece of it. Biodiversity loss is one piece of it. So overshoot is the big theme. And by explaining it like this, even primary school children can understand. You say from January 1st to July 28th, humans have used as much as Earth can renew an entire year. Not so complicated to understand. Even it's not just the concept, it also explains the amount because a child knows, okay, July 28th, that's nearly before summer vacation. And it's a long way to Christmas. And you know, Christmas is not even the end of the year, for example. So it's a, it's a way to kind of make that clear now. That's just to measure where we're at. And as you correctly said, the main point is just to recognize if that's the context we live in, what are the opportunities? The opportunity is to prepare yourself for the inevitable future, because if you're not prepared, you are not prepared. It seems so obvious, but we do as if we have to tell other people to get prepared and don't get prepared ourselves. Right now, as we tape this, it's COP27 and countries meet, point fingers at each other and do nothing, rather than saying, what do we need to do to stay successful and just do it? because. If they're not ready, they're not ready. And there's so many opportunities to move out overshoot day or to reduce overshoot by design or disaster are economically viable. In fact, if you look at companies, you say what companies are more likely to be valuable in the future, it's those that if they expand, global overshoot goes down. Like for example, a car company, you expand it, it produces more cars, so overshoot goes up. If you have a windmill company, it takes energy to produce windmills. But if these windmills displace coal power, then as they expand, overshoot goes down. As an example, now that's how we have started to collect and say there's a lot of possibilities because they're essentially, if you look at your hand, there are five fingers on most hands, and then they represent the big areas of transformation. On the thumb represents how much Earth can renew. So for example, you can have regenerative agriculture, or I'm involved as Global Footprint Network, a part of a company called Replanet to look at how can we rebuild ecosystems, mangroves particularly, to sequester CO2 and also improve biodiversity and through that bring financial resources to places that are economically quite challenged. So it's kind of bringing all these things together. So that's one way that's the thumb. And then the four areas of demand, they overlap slightly, but the big ones are how do we organize our cities or the way we live, like our habitats, the human habitats, the way they are designed determines consumption, obviously, mobility, uh, efficiency of housing, etc. How do we power them? That would be the energy one. You know, do we use solar power? What do we use coal power? The third one is how do we feed ourselves currently? About 55% of the biocapacity of the planet today is already occupied for our food production. And we are just, just about to turn 8 billion people. And then the last one is how many are we? If we had double as many, that's half as much capacity per person. Now in 2100, how many people could we be? 
depends on choices today, obviously. So that's going to be a time when most likely, hopefully, we will not use any fossil fuels anymore, but fossil fuels also enables more ease in food production and food conservation and transport, etc. So how will they be able to operate not having fossil fuels, hopefully? Not too much more climate change if you move out early enough, but there's only the regenerative capacity available. So population size also makes a big difference for their ability to thrive on the planet. And 2100 may seem far away, but there are many people born already that given current life expectancy would be around in 2100. I've met some. Yes. And you mentioned regenerative agriculture and not having enough land to support the growing population. So I don't know the elements of regenerative agriculture, what your thoughts on the future of agriculture are. We're part of a large, for us, large project on food because part of the crunch is not just energy. There we have more ideas what to do. The other one is food, where we talk a lot, but actually the understanding of how we can meet the needs is far, far less. I don't understand how, to be honest. That's why we have this project. And we started putting together what we call 10 impossible imperatives, trying to spell out all the aspects that we need to address simultaneously to be able to meet that need. So food may be even more important than energy because without food, then it's really, really tough, you know. So what are these imperatives? Look it up and on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it touches so many aspects. I mean, you just think of plastics as one thing. Plastics, so omnipresent in the food system, from agriculture production, from greenhouses, from covering things up, from storing feed for animals, you know, so all the way to then preservation of the food. So it was a less gets destroyed in the production cycle. And then as we distribute and store at home, like plastics are everywhere. So practical, but there's no real good future and there's chemical problems of contamination and all these kind of things. And obviously the use of fossil fuels, etc. So, So that's kind of one aspect, like probably we have to make food uh, much more plastic free. How do we produce high yields without fossil fuels? Currently, a lot of the fertilizers are used with very, quite massive fossil fuel input example. So the list goes on. I don't want to bore you with that, but yeah. So so food is a big conundrum. And yes, there are innovative possibilities that are being tested and they may not be as efficient yet as they could be. And still, I mean, just using land as is, even, I mean, vertical farms, then you start to have to build infrastructure that takes resources. Well, if you just use land that is there, that doesn't take as many resources. So it's kind of easier to do some I have a question about the ratio, like, would, will we have to put too much energy into building these structures to get food back? I don't know. But that these are the things we need to experiment with and learn more about because we need to look at all options. Yes. And you mentioned plastics and it's 110 billion single-use plastics that are produced by Coca-Cola every year. And yet they're sponsoring COP27 and the fossil really? fuel lobbyists. Mm. I mean, the irony is there. And was it 600 fossil fuel lobbyists at the, at the COP? So yeah, I think that was in Glasgow for sure that the representatives of fossil fuel industries outnumbered by a big, big margin, the largest national delegation. So, yeah. Yes. On the positive note, what we like about what you do, of course, as you say, it's not an awareness campaign, it's tools and the variety of parties that you create these customized calculators for from mm. financial institutions, public policy organizations, and you have educational initiatives. So just tell us about some of those. We have tried all kinds of different things and many have failed. That's part of, of the deal. Don't get stopped by failures. Learn from failures. In the beginning, we thought if you can get 10 countries to adopt this kind of accounting to really consistently measure how much nature they have and how much they use, which we think is as important as 
a fuel gauge on a plane and you wouldn't fly a plane with a fuel gauge, you know, that's what we thought and still think. So we engage with countries to say, well, wouldn't you want to verify our numbers to see if they're correct and then apply it. So we gave ourselves 10 years to engage 10 countries. In the early days of the organization, we got 12 countries within eight years. We surprised ourselves, but the impact was really quite weak because I think most countries, or most policy people, particularly if they hadn't really looked at the study, thought acting on recognizing ecological limits would damage their economy and therefore would not be a good option to consider. So there was, we created more fear than love. That's why I say information that is just relevant, it was highly relevant, it was perhaps too relevant, but not empowering in their eyes, it was just met with being fought or ignored or finding ways to not deal with it in some ways. So well, that's kind of one way, like we still continue to work with governments here and there where there are openings. One thing that I find most interesting right now is we are starting to engage more with businesses because businesses are very diverse. Some are very aligned with the future we need. Some are not so aligned, you know, so it's very different, but it goes back to what I said before. It's very simple. Which businesses are actually helpful for the transformation that we have envisioned? And it's those that, as I said, as they expand, overshoot goes down. And there are quite a few of them. We just worked, for example, with one recycling company in Germany. Like on average, it takes about two and a half square meters of ecologically productive space to produce one dollar value add in a year. So it's like the little farm of the dollar, you know, that's what it takes. And uh, this company, for example, through their activities, they reduce global overshoot by 28 square meters, more than 10 times per dollar value add. So they have a negative farm 10 times larger. So the more they expand, the better is the overshoot situation in the world. We also calculated for our replanted initiative on, on, on carbon sequestration there, the ratio is 650 square meters going down per dollar value add. You know, so it's possible. Obviously, not everybody can live on negatives. You have to live a bit on the waste stream and kind of make things better. But it is possible to operate, to produce value by reducing the overshoot challenge. And so, so that's very exciting, we believe. This company we worked with, it's a $1 billion company, now $1 billion Sounds like a lot and is a lot, you know, it's, but it, I mean, there are many large companies. This one alone that we calculate, they said, how much have we moved as overshoot day? We said, you don't want to know. It's too small. They said, no, we want to know. We said, no, it's, it's going to be discouraging. We own, they said, please calculate. So we said, okay, if you don't tell anybody, we'll calculate. We did calculate and we came up with four minutes, 20 seconds, more than a second, but still not that much. You know, so they said, oh, that's very small. <laughs> But they thought it was very exciting because they thought, oh, we're just one company. We alone moved the world. Four minutes, 20 seconds. So they were you know, proud and told all their friends. And it didn't backfire in some way. So we think now, how about developing a one-hour club? How about bringing companies together that like we have four, four minutes, 20 seconds and others together would move at overshoot day by one hour. Now, one hour is not enough, obviously. 156 days missing just to get to one planet, but it's a start. And I think that also could then shift the conversation about among investors. For example, you could translate any portfolio of an investment, like your personal investment, or if you're a billionaire, like your assets or a company or whatever the portfolio is, you could translate into seconds. How many seconds of global overshoot do you own in which direction? And so we could compare any investment fund against each other on their performance to what extent they help us fit within the planet's means or not. And that's not a moral question only. I mean, a moral question, good or bad, but it actually is a value proposition question because those portfolios that are enabling the world to live better within the means of one planet, I think on average are much more likely 
to be valuable because they do not run into ecological constraints and because these investments will be needed more. So it's not just kind of a statistical correlation. It is, if you look at the causal link, it's just much more likely that things that are, that are useful will be needed. You know, overall, there are always exceptions, but on average, I think that holds true. I think so. That you're giving that incentive, a, you know, a one-hour club or a, trying to aim it at a 24-hour club or something like that. Yeah, the competition, the alpha individual wanting to compete on that level. <laughs> yeah. So in, in some ways, not from, so much from the ranking perspective, say you're good or bad. I think we need to move the conversation from commitment to relevance. Commitment always is cost, you know. Oh, we have to do that. Relevance, is, that's actually helpful for me to, as I run a business or as I invest in business, to understand to what extent my business is fit for the context we live in. So it's kind of trying to find this alignment. Exactly. So. I and mean, in terms of the multinationals, I mean, their economies are bigger than a number of countries. So the big impact that that cre could create is enormous. Um, no, absolutely. So big businesses could have a big impact. I think it's also indirectly. I think what we see is so many governments are afraid of this transformation because they think it's going to ruin their economy. Well, actually, it's the other way around. If they don't get ready for this new context, their economies will be ruined. It's just not understood that way. But I think if they can see more businesses, winning businesses kind of taking a new route, they will be more encouraged to, or more, they find the courage to take that on more fully. So you were just speaking about business things. You've spoken about the governmental level and you've touched on the personal level and the individual levels. So what are your thoughts on allocating personal responsibility in such a complex crisis? especially in light of news coming out, such as the fact that billionaire investments made a million times more greenhouses than the average person. Yeah. In my way of talking, I try to move away from the word responsibility because people don't come towards me and say, thank you so much for giving me responsibility. <laughs> Rather, they avoid me at parties. And so how do we talk about it? So I like more that the metaphor of brushing your teeth, you know, brushing your teeth is not so much an imposition. You must brush your teeth. Otherwise you're a really bad person. You know? No, you just brush your teeth because you want to have healthy teeth. It's not a capitalist plot either. They say, oh, you're such a capitalist protecting the capital in your jaw, you know? <laughs> no, we want to have healthy teeth. So it's, it's just something that is protecting your teeth is necessary. Make an effort today to protect the health of your tooth tomorrow, you know? And that's kind of a, a similar approach. So uh, the same principles that apply to a country or a city also apply to an individual. I mean, an individual could be an investor or kind of have a pension fund. I don't know. And so there is the question, is my investment going to be more valuable in the future or not? Probably more likely to be valuable if it is aligned with what the future will look like. Or are you making decisions about where to live? Like if you make yourself dependent on cars, then every time gasoline prices go up, then you get more exposed. If you can live with fewer resources, then you feel more safe. So we are talking more about resource security rather than reducing your demand, which is the same thing. But it comes with a twist. If we talk about, you got to reduce your demand, it generates resentment in society. Because if I put an effort into showering less, and you know, and, or showering cold water, what it may be or whatever, you know, not going somewhere, and I see my neighbor still doing it, I feel resentful about the neighbor. So it, it generates resentfulness in society because you think, I gave myself up for humanity and you didn't, and it's unfair, you know. But if you think from a perspective of resource security and, and you learn how to live, 
not depending on that many resources. You feel safe for yourself. And if your neighbor is not able to do it and still depends on a lot of resources, you can feel empathy for the neighbor. Oh my God, my neighbor's really exposed. And so it's so by empathy is kind of a more stable mechanism. I think we have to find ways to build empathy for saying, wow, it's really about preparing ourselves. Like with COVID, you know, with COVID, if you protect yourself, that's good for society as well. And so that's kind of a win-win that we want to develop. And that you developed after working with leaders and decision makers, mm-hmm. how you adapt it to their different fields. So that's why I think it's kind of working with the winners. It's a bit more rewarding because they see the necessity and the collaboration is much easier and the winners will produce envy so the others will kind of follow them as well. Because if you don't, if you're not wanting to see the context you live in, you will fall off the cliff on your own. You need to fight them. And then you work within the EU and how do you navigate that? I think actually it's not that complex. Complexity is a racket for not wanting to act. Their whole institutions try to generate complexity. Everybody can be calm and maintain business as usual. It's not so complex because in the end, there's just one planet Earth we live on. It's hard to get to Mars. And so how can we thrive within that planetary constraint? So I think the first thing is to say this whole conundrum we live in is not your burden. We personify Earth or the, the world, the world and I. So it's not that complex in the sense. Of, so we often personify the Earth and say, me and the Earth and me and the planet. And I'm trying to help the world and the world doesn't help me, whatever. And so, but actually the world is so big. Even if you are a big country like the United States or China, it's still, you're still one little piece of a much bigger word. So it's more helpful rather than saying, this is my burden to recognize the conundrums you are in as your context. That's just your game board. You're on that game board. And the question is, what's helpful? The second point is, what is helpful is solutions that are replicable, physically replicable, are good for you because you're much more likely to succeed with them because you're not running into competition. And it also helps others more than you want others to also take on these solutions because they're replicable and not in competition with you. So that's kind of the true meaning of win-win solutions. Solutions that are replicable are more stable. They make the system more stable. So that's kind of two, two simple rules. Recognize, I mean, recognize it's your context. The second one is focus on replicable solutions and the complexity just falls away and you can, can live you, with ease and joy. And can you tell us how you find these contexts and how you work within the context of a more higher emitting country versus a smaller emitting country that feel impacts more? And for example, earth overshoot is such a broad term. How do you navigate that nuance of a bigger emitting country and a smaller emitting country? So I don't really, I mean, we're just a small organization under 20 people. We do many things, including earth overshoot day, which it's hard to fundraise for. It's kind of like, even though it's popular, it doesn't seem to be so popular to be funded. But so, so we just do it nevertheless on the tail end of other projects. But for example, in Germany alone, 43% of the population knows about Earth Overshoot Day. Just somebody found out, like a partner that did a survey to find out. Not bad, like we serve all countries with 20 people and people know about it. Perhaps not sufficiently that they feel empowered. But so that's kind of one way of trying to influence the public debate. Overall, like to say, we're still pretty miserable and kind of transforming the conversation. We're still stuck in this mindset or trap, which essentially stands for an inconvenient truth means the more you know, the worse you're off. Who wants to know more if you're worse off? You know, it's a, it's a trap really. So by looking at the perspective of overshoot, which we think is the second largest risk for humanity, it becomes actually easier to address because like all things come together. And you start to see the self-interest to act because if you're in a world of overshoot and you're not able to be resource secured, really, it's going to hurt you. So it's not just being nice to the rest of the world. I mean, that too, but primarily 
also becomes really essential. If you're not ready for that world, it's going to be very difficult for you. So by bringing this story out, <clears throat> make it resonant, people then also come to us. Like companies approach us and say, let's work with each other. And it may not be that important how big they are because we are impressed by stories to a large extent. So the more we can show examples where people build their own success by thinking about the world from that perspective, that's probably convincing others in some ways. So it's very hard to work effectively with institutions who deeply believe that the information is inconvenient because they come up with excuses and you try to overcome the excuses. And by the time you've overcome these excuses, they have invented seven other excuses, you know, like the Hydra, try to chop off the head and seven more heads grow. You know, so I think that's really the big tragedy we find. It's kind of, and I think it, it actually would be so simple to, if we had a better narrative, we're so in love with the narrative of pointing fingers that we don't see the obvious, I think. So it's like we're on a boat, you know, we see a big storm approach and we realize our boat is not too seaworthy. And then the first thing we do is we go to an international boat owners conference to kind of find out who needs to fix their boat first. Doesn't make that much sense to me, you know? Right. And kind of we complexify the story rather than saying, actually, I'm exposed. And so when you say, oh, the poor Maldives, we take ourselves out of the game. It's about these others, it's actually about each one of us in some ways, you know? On that note, I was just thinking, what if the animal life of this planet had their own alternative cop? I don't even think they would have a conference. They would just get on with it and adapt. <laughs> yeah, in some ways. I'm not against conferences per se. Like, for example, it's good to learn from each other and coordinate whatever is what is possible. It's just more the idea of like commitment. Oh, we have to commit more. If you say commitment to somebody who's not totally convinced already, what they hear is cost, effort, more complication. And so lots of commitments are made and not even those who make them follow up. You know, it's a strange mind frame. In a world where we are told every day that humans are changing the planet at an unprecedented rate and living well beyond our means, it can be easy to lose track of all the ways we are depleting nature. In an economic system defined by growth, it can be hard to picture a different way. Isn't expansion the marker of success? Isn't accessibility to and use of resources precisely what makes some countries economically different than others? The Global Ecological Footprint Network is a tool that allows us to visualize exactly how many Earths, in terms of resources, we as a society use. And the Overshoot Organization helps us see what day of the year that we overuse our Earth's resources is. This year, it fell on July 28th. Although deeply disturbing, these visualization tools can help us keep narratives of never-ending doom and never-ending growth in check. Yes, there is a lot of doom around us, but the first step to solving these issues is understanding the problem, which the visualizations can help do. As for the never-ending growth, the Ecological Footprint Network and Overshoot Day help us see that that is, indeed, a myth. One might reach for the ever-tempting technocratic argument that the use of technology is helping us reach beyond the limits of the Earth's natural resources to the 1.8 Earths that we are currently using, according to the Overshoot Network, which varies greatly by country. Yet, to those arguing this, I ask, what about the people who have been suffering from heat waves that grow worse every year? Elderly who die from heat, the victims of more intense storms, of drought, of sea level rise, the evidence is clear. 
People are suffering from our use of 1.8 Earths today, and the suffering will increase until we reduce our resource use within sustainable limits. But all actors in this issue are not equal. The following are how many Earths we would require if everybody lived like the named countries. On the higher end of the spectrum, we have Qatar, requiring 9 Earths, Luxembourg, requiring 8.2, a few more, and then Canada, United Arab Emirates, and the United States of America tied at 5.1. On the lowest end, we have Yemen, requiring 0.3, Afghanistan, Haiti, and Timor-Leste requiring 0.4, and so on. The trend here is that less economically developed countries require less Earths, and more economically developed countries require more. And yes, those who have more money will utilize more resources, but that does not make it fair. The reason we are not at 9 Earths, 5.1 Earths, or anywhere above 1.8 Earths is because there are residents of smaller and lower emitting countries living well below the capacity of Earth's resources. The reason we are not doing worse is because there are countries and people that have been forced to live with fewer resources because of colonialism, exploitation, injustice, and more. That's why, although we all live on one planet and should all collaborate for broader climate solutions and face the ecological crisis together, we must frame our collaborations with each other through the lens of justice. Pointing fingers might be reductive, but accepting relative responsibility accordingly is essential. And even if we had our resource usage under control, who decides how much we are entitled to? Who decides how much land is enough to graze over so that we can raise livestock at inhumane rates for the highest yield of protein? Who decides how many fish we can take from the ocean so that the stock is sustainably replenished? How much air pollution is sustainable or a sacrifice that we are willing to make? Sustainability is still defined within the premise of human lifetimes and future generations. Should that change? These would make interesting debates, yet these are philosophical questions that we do not even have the capacity to indulge in until we move to at least one planet, or less than that, as Professor Vagernakel was saying. Thus, we must consider what these visualizations say about our society, how to move forward knowing what we know with overshoot and footprints, and how to collaborate through a lens of justice. Now, back to the podcast. We've been talking a lot about overshoot day, but I know you use the ecological framework a lot. I wanted to ask, how is your network reclaiming the term footprint and using it for good? Given the fact that BP oil companies popularize the term carbon footprint, which is different, but it's the same type of framework. A big theme is overshoot anyhow. Yeah. And I think perhaps we give BP too much credit for that. I mean, they followed the footsteps of many other NGOs that also kind of had a rhetoric of individual responsibility, you know, and so what's your footprint Then you need to reduce your footprint. And I was part of that too. I mean, up to actually 95 we got buttons from companies, made these buttons in good faith and said, reduce your footprint. And so I, I traveled around the world because we were invited to these universities to give lectures and all these kind of things. And we handed out, I think, then thousands of these buttons that said, reduce your footprint. Until a young woman at the end of the room put up her hand, said, why, 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 why should I reduce my footprint so that you can eat more chocolate? That was worth the trip, you know? Because everybody thinks that nobody dared to say it. And so to the extent that I could even think it myself, you know, from the other side. And that's exactly the point. So it's not so much the words. I mean, I think 
on some level. I don't know if BP is a big culprit, but I mean, the, the term footprint kind of seemed to kind of infect people and they don't even go further to say, what does it actually stand for? Like if the name explained what it al already is, the big issue is how much do we use compared to what Earth can renew? That's the limiting factor. And even like, a, I mean, a, a, every airplane magazine has somewhere it talks about carbon footprint or something, you know, <laughs> so you wonder about the understanding. We like to work with corporations actually, because if we have worked a lot with WWF, if they say there's overshoot, people say, yeah, that's part of their business model to say that. But we get to work with the Meat Association of Australia, I don't know, for example, when they say we have problems with overshoot, that becomes more noteworthy in some ways. So we don't actually compare that much between like sectors. It's we compare more between like who recognizes limits and who doesn't. But, and they can be in all kinds of different camps. Do they recognize that we need to find activities that like are beneficial for people? And at the same time, reduce overshoot that this is the pathway to a much more stable future. That's the ones we work with. And I think, as you said, that when people say that they're making sacrifices, they're thinking about costs. We had conversations about this recently. It has to be brought out into the open that there is a level of inconvenience for people, but, you, but it has to be addressed because if it's just denied, then they won't make those changes. I think it may sound extremely capitalist, but I think it's more about securing our asset base. Because if our assets are not fit for the future, we, assets are there to provide for us. And assets like our houses, our transport system, our energy system are there to provide for our needs. Losing in value means they're less able to provide for our needs. So in the broadest sense, the transformation is about securing that our asset base can be maintained and doesn't whittle away. So yes, it could be that like, if you look in the end, that there would be changes, but is it a sacrifice? Would, I mean, it's the same sacrifice as like an investor says, oh, you're sacrificing money. You could spend it now and you invest it in somewhere else, you know? So it's a sacrifice in the short run to kind of get a more benefit in the future in some ways. But I think the suffering and sacrifice mode, if that's what's at the forefront of people's understanding, it reduces the possibility for people joining the invitation. I think. So it's like with some people want to lose weight and there's very little talk about, oh, you'd be so hungry, miserable. You'd be having headaches, be craving food for months to come. No, we say, hey, you know this program, you'll start to feel fit, you know, and it's better and vitality and you look good and everything. Yeah. So it's, so it's worth the effort. Let's do it. And it's going to be so great. You know, so it's a way how we position it. So it's kind of similar to like, if we lead with only the negatives without understanding why it's such a great return on investment, you know, then we won't be able to win people over. I think that's my sense. So I think the suffering and sacrifice, like it's so deeply ingrained in people's mind that they cannot hear the necessity as if it was a voluntary activity. I was at a conference with the German government and that was kind of the whole focus. I tried to persuade them not to go that right, but they just couldn't think different. They said, oh, we need to convince people to renounce consumption, but then they don't. And what do we need to do? I just think it's not a very helpful frame, you know? So yeah, we've, I mean, resource demand has to go down, but how can we explain it as a benefit? And that's why I think resource security makes it a benefit. You'll be more secure. You'll be able to live well because otherwise you put yourself in danger. You know, we're bleeding. We're bleeding ourselves, being too dependent on resources that are not available. It's a wound. We're healing a wound. So it is dramatic. I mean, it's not to say, oh, everything like it's just can do nothing. It's like there will big shifts are needed if you want to be able to operate in the future. So it is very serious. Yes, nature is circular by yeah. design. Yeah. And yeah. we just have to relearn what we've forgotten, really. Mm.
Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like we're on that route for the 1.5 degrees of global warming At or least. more. But you've spoken about focus on replicable solutions. And you've identified that the global campaign for sustainability will be won or lost in cities. So as you look ahead at this decade of transformation and you consider the rapid adaptations that need to take place, renewable mm-hmm. energy, efficiency, transport, sanitation, what are those things that we need to do? Yeah, I think one of the things you want to do in the end, only things you want to do will happen. So I think the best thing to get on that track is to ban in our own speech the word should, because as soon as we say should, we indicate it's not going to happen. We lose agency. Oh, they should. So what do we want to do? And I think it goes back to what, like, we have this website, Power of Possibility, focusing on these five domains, showing possible ways, how much they are able to move us over should they. Lots of them are available. Why are we not taking them? And some, it's hard to know. I mean, there's like one part is habit that people have a hard time shifting habits. What they think is normal is just habitual, really. And in my life, I'm now 60 years old, since yesterday, by the way, I've lived through the fossil fuel age and that was always there, always there in my life. But in reality, from a historical perspective, it's just a little blip in my life. I think 85% of fossil fuel use happened in my life. Not extendable like that, you know? So it's a very unusual perspective. So it's hard to imagine in my brain that my normal life is quite exceptional. But then we have the brains to imagine and say, oh, actually, (laughs) what's the downside of understanding better how the world operates, to understand better what has a chance to become more valuable in the future? Because that helps us to orient and, and that seems to be so puzzling to me how much effort I've seen from many institutions put into not wanting to know their context. There's no upside. And still, there's so much effort put into that. Yes. So no shoulds, but everything about what we can do and what we want to do. So obviously you've embedded this in some of your educational toolkits, which goes right down to K through 12 and you have the EU steps. Just tell us a bit more about that. So to make the story accessible, we have a number of things, including, for example, a footprint calculator where you can calculate your own footprint. Some days I think that we should take it down because people have experienced a bit of suffering and sacrifice kind of story in it. Oh my God, my footprint is too big. What should I do? I think it's just helpful to understand from a quantitative perspective where you're at. So perhaps we should put another layer in front of the calculator that tells people first, we think it's important to understand just quantities. So go and check out your country at data.footprintnetwork.org or check out your own situation. So that's the footprint calculator. And at the end, we don't tell people now, and I think we do it in very graphical ways and more playful way. We don't tell people to go back and minimize their footprint and suffer. We just say, what solutions do you love? So there's many opportunities where you can explore through power of possibilities or a map that we have that shows around the world possible solutions, et cetera, to explore and see what they like. That's one thing. And then we also have curriculum put together, but this is a new project, EU Steps is for universities, particularly in Europe, like a curriculum of 12 hours that can be put into various courses to play with these concepts and also do these calculations, even calculations for the university. That's a possibility. We have now a new calculator. If you go to footprint network slash tools, that's a great entry point because it also shows a new scenario tool where you can look at the various parameters that shape the demand and supply of the, in the future, like how will buy capacity develop, like how are our production rates that tell how many people we are and how will consumption change, which you can fine tune with the footprint calculate to find out what would be possible. And then you can see how it plays out in the future. And the curve makes all kinds of funny shapes. I think you can even draw an elephant 
you can by changing the parameters accordingly. And so the playful ways to engage with what's possible. So, yeah, so there are these tools there, hopefully stimulating the conversation in ways that produces the sense of desire and agency and boosts people's curiosity for more because it needs so much more creativity and intelligence to move into that space. I'm quite disappointed, I must say, with academic institutions now. I think from I haven't found many that prepare the young generation adequately or have in the last 10 years or the last 20 years. And we knew much about the future then. <laughs> back then already. It's actually quite tragic how underprepared the young generation gets from the current academic institution while bleeding themselves for you with huge tuitions, but get underprepared. Yeah. yeah. In terms of practical adaptive intelligence, you know, beyond the theory of it and how to apply it, it's so important. I agree. We do need to change the narrative and the tools that we give young people. What teachers or collaborators have been important to you? My 92-year-old primary school teacher just sent me a little note for my birthday yesterday that touched me very much. She inspired a lot of broader thinking about the world and how the world works and respect for others. And yeah, just kind of exploring things and, and being curious about the world. Yeah. And some singing too, which is great. And, uh, and then another great mentor was a farmer who lived close to a vacation home that we, I went off to as a child. And I tried to help him, probably stood more in his way, to be honest. And I'm still friends with him and he's a great person who just kind of showed me kind of how food is being produced, like how cows <laughs> get milked and, and how, like, handling animals. And, and so, so just the whole rural-urban relationship as a child to experience it and also finding kind of having fun kind of on a farm, I think was quite influential in my from a mentoring perspective. There have been many people in, in my life still that guide me where I can go and Go for advice. Some of them, my colleagues also at work, obviously. It's like having different perspective and eyes on the same problem is really, really helpful. I also had a great time like with, with Bill Rees, with whom I developed the ecological footprint. That's 30 years ago. Like when I, I had a chance to kind of academically just spend four years on my PhD, that was just a fantastic time with somebody who kind of thought alike, you know, it's kind of, and so to explore new ideas together and have this closeness and intellectual development was great gift. That's, I mean, just having been, like, having had the opportunity, I got a scholarship just to spend four years of my life on something that I was really intrigued with and, and with basically no constraints apart from at the end having to produce a thesis, you know, that's okay. That was fantastic. That's an enormous privilege, obviously. And then after that, I mean, the privilege of being able to spend my entire professional life on the questions I find most fascinating. I mean, who gets that? You know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Life is a great mentor too, that way. Yes, well, you are a great mentor for those who are directly involved with you or for those who utilize your global footprint calculators or the various initiatives that you have. And as you think about the challenges that we all face, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I mean, the main advice we give is sleep enough, you need to be rested. So you can also have a rested brain and make good decisions because in the end, it's about good decisions. It's not that complicated. Trust yourself. And yeah, it's, you're needed. I mean, that's, I think, what society often tells younger people, you're not needed. You know, you have to go to school forever and then get the first internship. And, but actually, young people are extremely needed because the transformation that will come upon us is larger than that of the iPhone, you know, in some ways, but just for the entire economy. And then the innovation that is required is just infinite. So, so it's going to be challenging, but it's also going to be quite fascinating and be part of it. So yeah, 
it's going to be a ride. And we're glad that we're passengers alongside you. <laughs> and thank you for helping drive this change. Yeah, no, you're not passengers. You're kind of having your own steering wheels, you know, it's a bus with many steering wheels. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you, Matis Vakanagal and the Global Footprint Network for advancing the science of sustainability and nurturing generations of citizens and leaders to spur individual and collective change to move us from inertia to action and create a better future for all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Eppeline Mall with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Eppeline Mall. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenmark. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.